Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. All right, the teaching text for today comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, 11 through 17. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the gate, the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, um, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king has said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're welcome to be seated. The dung gate. If you need to use the restroom during the service, the dung doors are just on the other side of this wall. Well, I'm really grateful. It's been three weeks since I've preached, and I really needed a break. It feels good to preach today, having had a break. Three weeks ago, my pal Jimmy Doyle was here and preached a summer favorite topic, lament. Uh, If you missed the talk, really, really helpful, talking about biblical lament. Todd has shared the last two weeks on the book of Ezekiel. Last week was my favorite, sharing from Ezekiel 47, and and Ezekiel has this prophetic vision of water flowing out from the temple of God, and everywhere the river flows, it brings life. It transforms spectacularly beautiful. And before we hop into Nehemiah this morning, I want to tell you a little about what the next few weeks are going to look like as we kind of wind down summer and gear up for, for autumn and for back to school. Today we're going to cover the book of Nehemiah, and if you tracked with Year of the Bible and you read Ezra and Nehemiah, spectacularly beautiful books. And I probably could have preached a dozen different sermons based on the story of Nehemiah, and I just picked one for today, uh, but a really profound book. Next week, uh, we're going to read the book of Daniel, and Daniel has some poignant moments talking about life in exile, but it's also kind of a trippy prophetic book, and so I'm going to delegate that one. So my pal Andrew Forrest is coming up from Dallas. Uh, Andrew is a pastor at Munger Place, and he's the one who inspired me. His church went through the year of the Bible last year. This year, they're doing the year of the Gospels. And uh, Andrew has been a great friend and encourager to me. He'll share next week on Daniel. Uh, He's a phenomenal preacher. Uh, The the week after that, Nina Reed. Is Nina in the room? Woo! 
Nina, Nina Reed is going to be teaching and preaching on the last book in the Old Testament called Malachi. So uh, please be praying for Nina and cheer her on. Let her know how excited you are that she's preaching. Then on August 18th, uh, we're going to be looking at a summary of the entire Old Testament. And so if you have not tracked with the year of the Bible or you gave up long ago, we're going to walk through all 39 books in 25 minutes. By the end of the sermon, you're going to get a sense of here's what the story was getting at, and here are the unanswered questions that are still lingering so that the week of August 25th, when we turn into the New Testament, we've all got a frame of reference for this is, what, this is the significance of what it means when it says, and this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Like, oh my gosh, from the beginning, this is mind-blowing. So on August 25th, we'll start the New Testament. But, but I want to invite you to consider something in the weeks leading up to the launch of the New Testament. I believe God, God has been stirring something meaningful in our church this summer. Uh, my, my pal Daniel, who just read Scripture, we had conversations months ago about how I feel like this summer is significant. God's doing something. And as we get ready for the New Testament, I believe that in this season where we're like uniquely fixating on the person of Jesus, God is going to do a work of renewal in the hearts of the people in our church. And we don't want to keep that to ourselves. And so we know that there, there are people that you work with who don't know Jesus. There are neighbors, there are people in your family, there are people you're friends with, and they don't know Jesus. And maybe if you ask them to come to church, they would straight up say to your face, absolutely not. But it seems to be the case that there are unique windows of time in which people are open to that invitation if you'd ask them. There are these times where the tectonic plates in the lives of a person shifts just enough that it creates a window of openness or opportunity. And it happens when there are major life cycle transition events. It could be that they, they just got divorced or they just moved to town, they just got married, just had a kid, just had a death in their family, going through some kind of sickness, something has caused them to look internal or to look up. And if you came along and said, hey, we're, my church, is, we're going to start reading through the New Testament together, would, would you do that with us? Or will you come to church with me? Because they know and trust you, if you ask, they just might say yes. And so I want to challenge you to think uh, and, and pray about who God is elevating in your world that God might be leading you to ask, to invite them to. Now, the first time to invite someone to church is super hard, maybe super awkward. I, I imagine that many of us haven't done it in a while, but it's kind of like this. Emily and I uh, have not had a dog since we've been married, and for 12, 16 weeks or so, my, my daughter and I go, have gone to Petco at 41st and Yale, and Rescued and Ready is always there from 11 to 3, and every week we go and we look at these dogs, and we're slowly warming up to the possibility of having a dog. One day we find this gorgeous lion. It's a boxer German shepherd mix, and he's just so freaking cute. So we ask the, the folks, like, can we do a, a rent-to-own situation? Can we, can we foster him for a couple days and see how it goes? And they say, sure. So we bring Leo home. He is a lion. Watching him bound through the yard is amazing. A fairly intense dog, too. So Emily is doing the dishes, and Leo is on point, just staring at her and freaking her out. And anytime someone moves in the house, the dog's constantly on patrol. So we conclude after a couple of days, it's not the dog for us. But we also concluded that the next time like we see a dog, we're going to be way more open to bringing that dog in our house because we've already done this lion. We know we can do it. 
So get over the hump of trying the first time, and man, the second and the third and the fourth time where God is putting folks on your radar, it's going to be so much easier. This is not about growing the church. This is not that we want something from people. It's that we want something for them. We want to share with them the blessing of, 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 of hearing and seeing Jesus uh, raw and unfiltered. This is what he said. This is what he did. This is what he was like. We want to share that. So be on the lookout. Nehemiah, if you don't have uh, your Bible open there, you may want to turn because we're going to go through the whole book in the next handful of minutes. In Nehemiah, we're, we're 50 years into the exile. The, the kingdom of Babylon had come into Judah and exiled their leadership, their artisans, their influencers, and walked them 700 miles across the desert. And now we're 50 years into this exile. They've adapted to a new normal. They've gotten jobs. They're used to being there, and yet they long for home. And Nehemiah is one of these exiles who finds himself in a position of privilege as the cupbearer to the king over the empire of Babylon. And as he's in his service, a report comes from back home from his brother Hanani, and we learn about the state of the city of Jerusalem. This is what uh, happens in Nehemiah chapter 1. This is Nehemiah's words. He said, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of the city's broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah learns the state of the walls of the city and the emotional state of the people that they're in disgrace, that he is brokenhearted. He mourns and he weeps and he fasts and he prays. He cries out to the God of heaven because it grips his heart. I wonder, when was the last time something grabbed your heart like that? where you heard the news report and in your spirit you were just arrested and grieved and groaned in prayer. One of the key times in recent years I remember was, was watching this video that the New York Times posted of children running down the streets of Aleppo, Syria, avoiding shelling. And I thought about my children. But man, if those were my kids. And I ran to the prayer room at Asbury and was weeping and grieving in prayer. But I stay pretty informed. I hear stuff like this every day. And you know the truth? Most of the time, it does nothing to me. Most of the time, I am unaffected or I'll change the station because I just don't want to hear one more report of bad news. This is called compassion fatigue. We live in an interconnected world where we know every terrible thing that's happening in the whole world all the time at every moment of the day. And to survive, we steel ourselves against the barrage of bad news by hardening our hearts. And so we're no longer shocked when, when the, the greatest atrocity happens because it's just one more and it may be the most, uh, most helpful and dangerous yet kingdom-minded thing that we could do is to ask God to break our hearts. Bob Pierce, who founded World Vision and Samaritan's Purse, famously prayed, may my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. Nehemiah's heart, his broken heart, leads to prayer. And what we're going to find in the next couple of minutes as we look at the story of Nehemiah that begins with destitution, that it actually shows us the shape of biblical renewal. 
And biblical renewal begins in this posture of a broken heart. The shape of biblical renewal is activated by destitution, but then it's kindled through intercession. His broken heart leads to weeping and it leads to prayer. Many of you have heard me tell the story of these Scottish Isles called the Hebrides in the late 1940s and 1950s. And there was a prevailing sense in the community that God's name was being dishonored and that the church was losing. And these two women, these sisters, 85 and 90 years old, one of them was blind, had a destitute, broken heart for the honor of God's name in her community their community, and they began to travail together in prayer until two, three, four in the morning, many nights a week, and they prayed and they cried out to God out of their destitution. Their destitution led to intercession, and this provoked the leaders of their community, the pastors in their community to get together and pray with them and pound on the door of heaven until they saw a move of God. The shape of biblical renewal begins in destitution, but then it leads to intercession. And this destitution leading to intercession is what one of my pastor heroes, John Tyson, calls the crystallization of discontent, where there's this sense of, I am hacked off that things are like this. We're not going to take it anymore. This sense of restlessness, we realize, is a gift from the Holy Spirit when it crystallizes into discontentment that leads to prayer. And this is what had happened with Nehemiah. As I think about our mission as a church to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things and knowing that the shape of of renewal begins in destitution and intercession, I acknowledge that we're not there yet. We're not brokenhearted for our friends who don't know Jesus. I'm not to the degree that I want to be. So if you're a praying person, maybe your prayer would just be, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. Cause me to want to care or to want to pray about those things. This is what happened with Nehemiah. The destitution led to intercession and a prayer for an opportunity. God grants Nehemiah's request for an opportunity and he finds himself in the presence of the king and makes the audacious ask that he could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and the gracious hand of God is on him and he goes back with the king's blessing and a mission to restore the dignity of his people. In Nehemiah chapter 2, if you want to turn there, Nehemiah uh, goes to the city and for three days does nothing, doesn't want to draw too much attention to himself. And one night he mounts on a little horse and begins, begins making his way through Jerusalem and assessing the damage. This is what Daniel read for us. And then the next day he goes in front of the people and he does one of the most vulnerable things in the world. He takes that thing that God had put on his heart and he opens his mouth and he tells somebody else. This is what we've already read. Nehemiah said to them, you see the trouble we're in. This is not a you guys problem, this is us. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem's in ruins, its gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let's rebuild it. Let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, what the king had said to me, and they replied, let's do it. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Nehemiah sees the state of the city, and he makes an appeal to the people by giving them a picture of a preferred future. 
of a city whose walls are intact and the people whose dignity is restored and intact. And then he gives them an invitation, let's do this together. And the people say, we are in. And it shows us the next two components of of, of the shape of biblical renewal. It begins with with destitution. It goes on to intercession. It's sustained by a renewed imagination. They get a picture of the future that they can all work toward together, but it's multiplied by collaboration. If Nehemiah's got this dream in his heart and he makes his way 700 miles across the desert and he gives his I have a dream speech and the people are like, eh, the rest of the book is cut short and you see one dude trying really hard in vain and probably gives up. As I think about, for for me, the great project of, of launching a new church, I will forever treasure the first people who said I'm in. Or the first people who said, that is not a terrible idea, and I'll help you with it. And I think for Nehemiah, it had to have been the same way. He remembers the names of those people who said, yeah, let's do this. And so as we turn to chapter 3, we just see this list of names. This personal burden becomes a shared burden. The solo project becomes a team effort when Nehemiah enlists collaborators. And so we see in chapter 3 the names of Eliashib and Zakur and Hassanon, Merimoth and Meshulam and Zadok and Joyada. Everybody has found their place on the wall where all our family's going to do this part and you guys do the gate and everybody has their little piece to contribute. Everyone's work mattered, so much so that though the book is named Nehemiah, everybody gets a shout out in chapter 3. And it gives us a picture of the story of the people of Israel restoring their walls. It also gives us a picture of the New Testament conception of the church, that in the church, everybody has something to contribute. Everybody matters. That's why Paul said, look, when you get together, someone brings a prophecy, someone brings a psalm, someone brings a word of encouragement. It's for that reason when we gather, the lights are up because I want us to see each other. The music is simple and we back away from the mic so we can hear each other. I want us to develop an imagination of usness because that's what the church is. The church is not a religious product that staff put on for individual religious consumers to come and partake of. The church is a group of people so that if this building burned to the ground or if I got hit by a bus and you guys found another pastor, the church would remain intact. The church is an us thing. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We're all baptized by one spirit to form one body. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many So the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. He continues. He said, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So God's put the body together so its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. And you, 
You all, says Paul to the church, you all are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. In the church, everybody matters. Everybody has something to contribute. No one personality type is prized over others. I'm sorry, we're a church of extroverts only. Sorry, we're a church of only Enneagram type 3 or 7. Check your card at the door. Myers-Briggs, ENTJ, okay. It's not a church just for some people. In the body of Christ, everybody brings something to the table. As Nehemiah and the people continue their work, we find that there were those who were not super enthusiastic, and we meet the opposition. Chapter 4, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and incensed and ridiculed the Jews. In the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then the haters continue. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, they sent me this message. Come on, let's meet together and speak reasonably. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. Look, I'm carrying on a great project, and I can't come down right now. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down with you? Four times they sent me the message, and each time I gave them the same answer. You think, gosh, what an inspiring work they're taking on the wall. Why would people be threatened by this? Why would there be opposition or resistance? But we find it to be a law of life that any time you try to take on significant work, and especially kingdom-oriented work, you're going to encounter opposition and resistance. Uh, most of the time, it's probably from within yourself. You're second-guessing your motivation. Did I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail miserably. You're, you're second-guessing within yourself. Maybe there are people close to you who are like, look, this is, this is too audacious. This is too bold. Who are you to do this? You don't have what it takes. Or maybe it's just outright opposition from enemies or from the enemy. But it is a law of life. When you step out in faith to do kingdom work, to do, to do adventure-oriented work, you're going to face opposition. But I love Nehemiah's response. The, the bad guys are like, come on, let's sit down, let's be reasonable, let's talk it out. And Nehemiah does not give them the time of day. It's like, hey, auto-reply, I'm doing something important and I can't talk right now. He moves on. It's the same lesson of Hebrews chapter 12, where after the hall of fame of faith, the author of Hebrews says, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In the view of opposition and resistance and just the difficulty of the work, we're going to run with perseverance, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and we are going to run the race that's marked out for us. One of the necessary components, one of the predictable components of biblical renewal is being tested by opposition, of facing resistance. And how we fare when we face those first waves of opposition is going to determine where we go from there. And what do we do in the face of opposition? We run with perseverance the race that's been marked out for us. And look, I'm a third kid. I have two older brothers who were bigger than me and taller than me, and they're these legendary characters. And one of, my, one of the components of my journey of faith in the last decade has been coming to be comfortable in my own skin. 
And so as I've read and reread this passage from Hebrews, I've underlined more times than I can count the words, the race marked out for us. I am not called to be Jacob Odom. I love Jacob Odom. I'm not called to be Joey Odom or Jamie Odom. I'm called to be John Odom. You're called to be you. God has built you in such a way and you will, you will suffer by trying to be somebody else. And as a church, we're called to stay in our lane, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What's the task, the part of the wall that's assigned to us? We're not called to be Life Church. I love Life Church. We're not called to be Transformation Church. I love Michael Todd and Transformation Church. We're not called to be Southern Hills Baptist. I love Southern Hills. We're not called to be Christ the King on Cherry Street. We're called to be faithfully us and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And the journey of learning the shape of biblical renewal, when we're faced with opposition, we run with perseverance and we pass the test by throwing off everything that hinders. As the story continues and the wall is finished, we see something unexpected happen, something that doesn't appear in any way related to the construction of the wall. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in the towns, the people came together in one square before the water gate and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the people, which was made up of men and women and everyone who could understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and everyone who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the reading of the book of the law. You think, how does that happen? We find that as the walls are going up, the people's eyes and their attention goes up. They begin to hunger for God's Word, a, a character trait that had been unseen for generations. They ignored the prophets, but now they are telling Ezra, read to us God's Word. We are dying to hear it. Told him to bring out the law. They asked for it. They submitted to it. We see when genuine renewal is happening, God's word, the scriptures are honored and treasured. It gives us another component of the shape of biblical renewal. It is activated by destitution. It's kindled through intercession. It's energized by a renewed imagination. It's multiplied by collaboration. It's tested by opposition. But then it is sustained by scriptural reinvigoration. They come to fall in love with the hearing of God's word as if it's for the first time. But this return to the law is only one of the unexpected dominoes that falls down the line as a result of the people rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah is this dude who has a burden for the wall. But as we turn the chapters, we see that as a result of the wall going up, people are motivated to rebuild the homes of Jerusalem. And as they are rebuilding the homes of Jerusalem, they, they rediscover the law. And as they rediscover the law, they realize, oh man, God has commanded us to observe these festivals, to remember all of his faithful acts in the past. And as the people begin to observe these festivals, they're, they're stricken with grief over their sin and they corporately repent. And as they corporately repent and they study God's law, they remember their story. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see this gorgeous summary of the entire Old Testament leading to this place. And as they're repenting and as they're remembering God's story, they're seeing, oh man, 
we've been screwing up for generations. But, but every time we came back and repented, God showed us mercy. Say, maybe he'll show us mercy again. And they cry out to God and they renew the covenant. How does building a wall lead to the covenant being renewed by all the people and repenting of their sin? It doesn't in an obvious linear cause and effect kind of way, but it leads us to one of the final qualities we'll see of the shape of biblical renewal, and it's that renewal begets renewal. That renewal in one spot opens up the emotional and the spiritual like capacities and imagination of other people so that what happens here causes new life to, to grow in a place you would never expect. We've seen renewal in our church in ways that you can't map through clear cause and effect pathways. And I love this concept that renewal begets renewal. It's why I'm so optimistic and hopeful for the Craig family. So they're having this like Abraham-like spirit of adventure. God said to Abraham, go to this land, I'll show you, and you're going to figure it out once you get there. The Craigs are having this spirit of adventure. And I'm confident as God has been renewing them that it is going to bless them in unspeakable ways. Renewal in their life, but I can imagine that their story is going to renew the imagination of other people in our congregation because renewal begets renewal. I love the story of Europe in the Dark Ages. They had just gotten through the Black Plagues. Tons of people had died. Uh, the, the, the church was impotent. There had been no major breakthroughs in art, in architecture, in science, and mathematics for a really long time. And then in 1492, Columbus gets on a boat, and he discovers that the world is bigger than we first thought. And within 30 years, Martin Luther is nailing the 95 Theses to the church at the chapel at Wittenberg. And within 40 years, Michelangelo is carving David, and we're in the middle of the Protestant Reformation and the Renaissance in Europe. Because a dude got on a boat, and we realized the world is bigger than we first thought. How does the Protestant Reformation or how does the Renaissance like get, like how does that happen as a result of a dude getting on a boat? You can't draw a linear cause and effect pathway, but renewal begets renewal. In the 1700s, there was the, the, the Moravian church who bounded together to begin this 24-7 prayer movement. And they had a 24-7 prayer movement that lasted for 100 years. And biblical or church historians will say that the modern missionary movement came out of the Moravian church in their 24-7 prayer movement. How does a praying church send out, you know, 300 pioneering missionaries and, and begin the modern missionary movement for global evangelization? There's not a clear cause and effect pathway, but renewal begets renewal. It happened for Nehemiah and the people. It's happening in the life of our church. You see God's work in someone else's life and you grow open to the possibility that maybe it can happen in ours too. Now, it's been a while since I'd read the story of Nehemiah uh, before preaching this, this sermon. Great book. So inspiring. Then you get to the very end of it and it's disappointing and dark. Nehemiah has led these great reforms, and the people have returned to the law. They're seeking God in earnest. And then since Nehemiah has finished his charge, he goes back to the king of Babylon and resumes his duty, and years later is given a pass to go back home and check out Jerusalem and see how things are faring 
And you can imagine he's making the journey home, and it's like, man, it's going to feel so good to see the temple. It's going to feel so good to see how people are obeying the law, and he gets there, and it's like nothing had happened. The people are not observing the Sabbath. They're, they're marrying foreign women, which was anathema. At the time, they're divorcing in ways that are putting women in positions of great vulnerability. They are left and right, forgetting all of the commands that they only so recently took up and, and, and observed. And Nehemiah is heartbroken and gets angry and just ends by praying, well, God, I tried, remember me. And it gives us these two uh, takeaways. One, as we think about the, the overarching narrative as we go through the year of the Bible, it tells us something about Israel, that Israel had a, a, a serious chronic problem that exile couldn't solve. They had a chronic problem of a waywardness of heart that prophet after prophet in 70 years plus of exile and the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall and the initial return to the law couldn't solve. And it sets up one of the lingering questions that hangs in the air as we finish the Old Testament. How is God going to transform the hearts of his chosen people who are supposed to be like a kingdom of priests and bring the nations to worship the God of Israel? Man, they can barely keep it together themselves. As we move into the New Testament, and certainly with the fall of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we see God's answer to this hardness of heart that's taken root in the people of Israel. But we also see in the story of Israel and the rebuilding of, of the wall and the, the ensuing demise of their renewal, a warning for us that was once so fresh and so poignant uh, can turn stale over time. Maybe you've been writing forever, plateauing forever on that moment you had with God at summer camp when you were 16 years old. You've been riding that wave and it's getting lower and lower to the ground. Or maybe like in years past, you really sought God. You, you were in the throes of personal renewal, been a part of a church that was actively seeking God, but it's run its life cycle and things are tanking. It gives us this invitation for constant renewal. The renewal is not just this thing that's supposed to happen at moments in history, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the Azusa Street revival, the Hebridean revival, revivals that are going on all over the world. It's not just supposed to be that moment in history, but we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus in perpetual renewal. Do not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we know that the renewal that we're seeking, like we need it perpetually, constantly. And where does it begin? And it begins in destitution of heart. Unsurprising then, as we get three pages into the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be filled. Be blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are destitute, they will inherit the kingdom. Invitation this morning, we can't ride forever on the renewal that your parents experienced and you're riding on the coattails of their faith. 
You can't live on yesterday's relationship with Jesus. This morning, we have an invitation to be renewed again, to be made new again, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in anticipation of that great capital R renewal that is to come when Christ returns. We see this beautiful shape of renewal that begins in destitution. We might experience an intercession and collaboration with each other, fueled by this vision of the future, enduring through opposition that's reinvigorated through the scriptures in anticipation of the full renewal that is to come when Christ returns in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. And so as we wait, we pray, Lord, would you break my heart for the things that break yours? Would you cause me to be among those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Would you cause me to be one who is poor in spirit and contrite in heart so that I might be a person and we might be a church that you can trust with renewal? Mission is a church to be a community shaped by the gospel because we are for the renewal of all things. Let's start with this posture of repentance and brokenness and destitution. And there's a, there's a lot uh, to be brokenhearted about in the state of the American church. There's a lot to repent of. And as I look at how, like, the, the definition of evangelical is being thrown through the mud and rightly, like, just, I mean, humiliatingly so, I think, man, maybe this is the beginning of something great where God is calling us back to a posture of repentance and not self-righteousness. In the middle of that, God might be doing a work of renewal. There may be some destruction that has to happen first, destruction of idols, destruction of ego, destruction of a sense of feeling like the majority in power or like we've got a leg up on somebody else. But as there's deconstruction, there's also reconstruction, renewal beginning in destitution. This morning, let's just ask God if you'd give us the gift of contrite hearts, the gift of a broken spirit, the gift of destitution so that we might become people who can be trusted with renewal. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you know our needs before we ask. Thank you that all of time is unfolding before you like a river and you see it from a mountain and so you are unsurprised and you know perfectly all the lessons of history. This morning, may we, your people, be attentive listeners, coachable students who are hungry to learn, like the people telling Ezra, read us the law. We say to you, Lord Jesus, like put your scriptures on our heart. Your precepts, imprint them on our mind. Cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Cause us to be brokenhearted and destitute about the state of our own souls and the state of your church around the world. And lead us to a place of intercession. Cause us to link arms with each other and to hunger for your scriptures, to hunger for renewal, to be given a picture of a preferred future. Help us to overcome opposition from within and without. Help us to be nourished by your scriptures. Do whatever work you want to do in our church. Make us significant or make us insignificant. Whatever it is that you most need to do, that we might be trusted with renewal, we pray that you would do that work in us. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. 
As we come to the table, Lord, may we be nourished on your life that you give us freely. Do you cause us to divest confidence in ourselves and throw ourselves at your mercy? And we say we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.